All right, saints, Daniel chapter 5. You'd open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Daniel chapter 5. And so keep in mind where we just had that last chapter 4 where God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And so he realized how um, that God was going to be sovereign over all the kingdoms of men. He was going to give it to whomever he wished, but he wanted to give it to those who would be humble. And that was the last word that we heard. And then in chapter 5, it begins, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. We see this man by the name of Belteshazzar, or Belshazzar. So, Keep in mind that as we're seeing here in chapter 5, if you want to, if you're a note taker, just jot this down because the head of gold is about to move into the chest and the arms of silver. What chapter 5 is, is that whole understanding where, remember we were reading in Daniel chapter 2 verse 32, where it made a statement as he was going through this whole understanding of where this um, image that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream Let me read in verse 31 and 32, but it said, You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and of course, and its legs of iron. So we see this image that comes through here, and where we're now about to go into the area where that, that, head of gold is going to move into that chest and the arms of silver. In other words, the Babylonian empire is about to end and the Medo-Persian empire is about to be started. It's that same thing that when we get into Daniel chapter 7, I want to read just two verses to you. I want to read verse 4 and 5 because he sees these beasts that come up and he says, the first was like a lion in Daniel 7, 4. And had eagle's wings, I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet, like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Speaking of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom. Verse 5, and suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and... They said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. So we see this Medo-Persian empire now comes over and it's about to take on Babylon. And what God does is he uses this one portion here of the, the reign right now of Belshazzar. Belshazzar, if you're a note taker, jot this down. Jeremiah chapter 27. In Jeremiah chapter 27, I want to read basically the first um, seven verses to you. Jeremiah chapter 27. When I start reading in verse 1, it begins this. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord to me, make for yourselves bonds and yokes, put them on your neck, and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, the king of Sodom, or the king of Sidon, by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and command them to say to their masters, thus says the Lord of hosts, The God of Israel, thus you shall say to your master. So he's telling these kingdoms, put a yoke on you. You're about to be taken into captivity because this says, thus says the Lord. Now verse 5, I have made the earth, the man and the beast and all that are on the ground. By my power and by my outstretched arm, I have given it to whomever it seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beast of the field I have also given him to serve him. So God is speaking to all these nations, and he says in verse 6, I've given all of this to Nebuchadnezzar. Now here's the key verse as we get into chapter 5, which is Jeremiah 27, verse 7. So all the nations shall serve him, 
and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes and then many nations and great kings shall make them make him serve them so at this point we see that in Jeremiah 27 verse 7 it talks about Nebuchadnezzar it talks about his son and it talks about his son's son in other words his grandson so what we see here is that Belshazzar is King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson let me give you a little bit of just information. Don't try to write all this down. Um, I'd recommend just, you know, getting the CD or going online. If you can write fast, go for it. But Nebuchadnezzar the king reigns for 43 years. Now he gives his kingdom to his son, evil Merodach. Now we, we note him. I'm going to give you two passages in which he basically does the same thing. The first is found in Jeremiah chapter 52 verse um, 31 through 34, it says this, Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, so this would be the son of Nebuchadnezzar, evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given to him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death, all the days of his life. So we see, you know, here that, that heart of Nebuchadnezzar's son, evil Merodach, is he takes the king of Israel and just really blesses him. There's another passage, it's a parallel passage, found in 2 Kings chapter 25, beginning in verse 27 all the way to verse 30. It says this, Now it came to pass in the 37th year of captivity of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, in the 12th month, of the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a Regular ration given by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. So we see these two instances in which we see Nebuchadnezzar and his son, evil Merodach. Now, although evil Merodach was very kind to king, um, the kings of Israel, we see here, if you're familiar with the, the history, um, that evil Merodach reigned for only about two years. And he was put to death by a man by the name of Nergal Sherezer. Um, he would be a son-in-law to um, Nebuchadnezzar. He, uh, let me actually just read you the passage. In Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 3, we're going to see that he's one of the princes. It declares this in Jeremiah 39, verse 3, Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate, Nergal Sherazar, Shamgar Nebo, um, Sarakim, Rabseris, Nergal Sarzer, Rabmeg, and with the rest of the princes of Babylon. So we see that he was one of the princes that came and sat down. So this son-in-law um, of Nebuchadnezzar, basically he um, had married... Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, and her name is um, Nitocris. That's her name. So he marries this Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, and he then kills evil Merodach, and he puts him to death two years into his reign. Now, as um, he's here, he reigns for about four years. This man by the name of Nergal Sherazal reigns for four years. He's killed in a battle, and then he gives his son... Um, Labaski, Marduk, he gives him then the kingdom. But he only reigns about a year. And so within one year, he's killed by the name, by a man named um, 
Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus, this is kind of weird. He also is King Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law because when evil uh, or when um, Nergal Sherezer dies, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, the, the you know, she goes and and she marries this other man by the name of um, Nabonidus, and so here. Nicrosis marries the, the first one that kills evil Merodach, and now she kills this, she marries the second one who then kills um, her, her son who had taken over the reign. But he does this so that he can reign. So the, the Nabonidus is also a son-in-law to Nebuchadnezzar. Now as I'm going through this, he's going to reign for 17 years. He reigns from 556 B.C. to 539 B.C. to where right now. This is what's taking place in, in chapter 5. Now what he does is he begins to neglect the, the Babylonian main god, the god of the sun, Marduk. And so he begins to raise up and, and elevate in position the Babylonian god Sin, which is the moon god. And so what he seeks to do is he tries to, his whole heart is set on just building temples and building temples and basically trying to build temples for um, the Babylonian god um, Sin. And he's building the temples in this place called Tima. And while building the temples to Sin, he leaves his son. Now this is his, his son whom you know he has with... Um, uh, Nitrochus, um, and so, and that is Belshazzar. So, and he's now, keep in mind that he's a co-regent. So, at the time here we see in Daniel chapter 1, here's what you need to know. Neb has a daughter. Um, Nitocris, and her first husband is... Um, Killed, he, he kills evil Merodach, the, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. When he dies, his son reigns. And then Nitrochris has a second husband, Nabonidus. He kills the boy to rule, and then he leaves his son Belshazzar as a co-regent while he goes and builds temples to sin. So that's basically what you need to know where Belshazzar comes on the scene. He is the son of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. She, of course, has two husbands. Um, the first son, of course, is killed. The second one is now here. Belshazzar probably has more, but these are the two that you know we have to make note of as we look here to this passage. So, all that being said, verse one, Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Exactly what was spoken of there in Jeremiah twenty-seven, verse seven: the Babylonian kingdom would last until Nebuchadnezzar his son, and his son's son. So what he's saying there in Jeremiah um, 27, he says, this is all going to end. You have to understand, it's all going to end. So before um, Belshazzar even comes on the scene, Jeremiah had already prophesied, in your reign, their grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, it's going to end. You're the last one. And so what he does now is, there is this massive army that has now come and is not really laying siege of Babylon, but is coming to attack Babylon. Now, this is the Medo-Persian army. Now, the Medo-Persian army is going to be um, basically controlled by Darius, the, um, the Mede. He's the king. He has a general by the name of Cyrus. He's going to be the one that's orchestrating all these um, things as far as the attack. And right now, there is this massive army that is coming up against Babylon. And what is Bel um, Shazar's you know, response to this? Let's have a party. That's his whole thing. He's not worried about um, any armies. Babylon was impenetrable. They had walls that you could ride six chariots side by side by side along the walls. They had that, you know, seventh wonder of the world, amazing hanging gardens. They had food that they could have forever. They could keep planting their own gardens. They could do it all. They had the water of the Euphrates as they actually diverted coming right in through the city. So literally they were impenetrable. 
and they knew it. And right outside the walls, they had the Euphrates River that surrounded these walls that were at some places up to 300 feet high. So in incredible heights to where we're seeing here the city was. And then on the outside of the river, you had this smaller set of walls. So literally an army had to break through the smaller wall, had to figure out how to get through um, the Euphrates River, and then had to figure out how to break through these walls that you could ride six chariots across. Massive, massive defenses. And so Belshazzar is not worried. And you see the first thing that he does when he finds out, hey, there's this army out there. He has a great feast. That's what he does. So in verse 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold, the silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So as he's drinking in this great feast, he now has this really foolish idea. Let's take those vessels that my grandfather got from you know, um, Jerusalem, from the temple there, and let's use those, temp- those vessels that were in that temple that was dedicated to their God, let us use them. That shows how weak and how feeble that God of Jerusalem is. Well, know this, as soon as he does this, we see he moves from this wanting to have a great feast to now really coming to this, this great folly where in his foolishness, he now declares in verse 3, then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. Keep in mind that as we see this, it's not just um, here the, just the king, and it's not just basically his lords. You have the king, you have the lords, you have his wives, and you have his concubines. This feast is basically just this incredible display of licentiousness. Just whatever is going on, they can do it all here. Well, verse 4, they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. It's interesting that they use these terms. The first gods they do is the, gold, the gods of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. What does that remind you of? Daniel chapter 2, the same as the image. And so you have those gods of, of the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, same as the image of the gold, the silver, the bronze, of iron, there in, in you know, chapter 2, verses 31 through 33. But we also see then they also are... are praising the gods of wood and stone. Now, most commentators believe that what we're seeing here is that this is now in Daniel 3, verse 20. Remember when they said, you know, throw them into the burning, fiery furnace. That in most commentators believe that this is part of that, that it was some natural outcropping of stone that they had designed so it could become this incredible furnace. And so they have this there, where you see basically the gods of everything that we've seen so far of Daniel 2 and Daniel 3 are now coming to to pass where they're worshiping it. Keep in mind that when it comes to idols, there's no new idols. They're the, the same idols. We have the same idols with different names. That's all it is. That we, we serve the, 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 the God and the goddesses of sensuality. We serve the, the, the goddesses and the gods of abundance. This is, you know, we, we put different names on them, but we still serve, you know, they're still the same idols. They just are the same old idols with a new twist. And so from this point here, uh, him having this great feast and going and having this incredibly foolish idea We see here that it changes instantly into verse 5 to this incredible fear. 
Notice what happens. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now, at this point, we see here the fingers of a man's hand appear and they begin to write. One thing that I want to make a note here, and for you note takers, jot this down. Beginning in Revelation chapter 17, I want to read verse 5, and then I want to jump to verse 18 and read verse 2 and then verses 5 through 9. Let me read now in Revelation chapter 17 verse 5. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Revelation 18 verse 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. And now in verses 2 or 5 through 9, we see this. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. And I find it interesting that he speaks of this cup now of Babylon here in Revelation. And he says, with this cup she's mixed, mixed double for her. And the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow, for she says in her heart, I sit as queen, and I am no widow, and I will not see sorrow. Therefore, verse 8, her plagues will come in one day. And keep in mind, Babylon will be taken in one day. That's it. So her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will utterly burn with fire, for strong is the Lord who judges her. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and live luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her, and they will see the smoke of her burning. So note this, in the same way as Daniel has this understanding where God begins to judge Babylon. We see the prophetic word there in Revelation where God also judges the new Babylon. He judges her with that cup that she has, judges her in one day. And in this sense, we see it's just a precursor. It's a a sign. It's a symbol of what's going to be happening in Revelation. And so... By the time we get to Revelation in a few months, we'll be, you know, there in chapter 17 and 18. We'll make reference here to Daniel chapter 5. So you get that whole back and forth thing. But this is what's happening. They begin to drink wine. They're, they're, they're praising the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They're drinking these cups that were from the, the temple there in, the, in Jerusalem. And so, verse 5, that same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lamp. Keep in mind that here, the writing is to the point where everyone can see it. It's to the point in the room where it's illuminated. You have the lamp, and then the lamp is illuminating on a wall. And so, where the greatest illumination is, is where these fingers are beginning to write here on the plaster of the wall. Of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. We see here this hand of God that is just writing, the fingers of God that are writing here upon the wall. Two references that you might want to be aware of. The first is found in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, which declares, And when he had made an end to speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The other reference that I think is key is in John chapter 8, verse 6, where Jesus here is with that woman caught in the act of adultery, and it declares this, this they said, testing him, that they might have something which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. 
And so we see here the, the very fingers of God writing the, the, the tablets of stone, the law, the Ten Commandments. Also Jesus with the finger of God writing again in the dirt. And here in Daniel chapter 5, verse 5, we see the fingers of a man's hand appearing. And so as they're writing now opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall, the king's palace, the, the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, Verse 6, and the king's countenance changed. He's no longer merry. He's no longer having this incredible feast where he, after he participated in this foolishness, he now has this great fear. And so his countenance changing. He's no longer all excited. He's no longer all tipsy through the wine and the alcohol. But now we see his countenance change. His thoughts troubled him. So the joints of his hips were loosed were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. This term is, is a little bit messy, if you will. When it, when it talks about here that the, um, the joints of his hips were loosed, the term that you would use is he soiled himself. Um, the, the, the joints of his hips were loose. He soiled himself. His knees are knocking together. And the king now, verse 7, cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation will be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Now, as Belshazzar says, okay, you are going to be the, the, the co-regent. Keep in mind that his dad, Nabonidus, is also the one who's reigning. He's, he's there, as we've already talked about. Um, they're building these incredible you know, temples in Tima to, to sin. And as you know, Belshazzar is this co-regent, this is why he says at the end of verse 7, he shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Why? Because his father, Debonidus, is the first. He's now the second. So he says, you're not above me. You're right after me. And so we do recognize here that, that through Scripture validating those things that are in historical accounts through archaeology, that here Belshazzar is a king, yet he's a co-regent. So he's like the junior king. His dad, Nabonidus, is still the primary king. But although he's a co-regent, he says, okay, whoever, Daniel, if you do this, or whoever of the, the um, Chaldeans, the soothsayers, whoever does this, um, out of all of the magicians and the soothsayers and the Chaldeans and astrologers, whoever does, you'll be third in command. Now, at this point, we see in verse 8, now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Now, when it says all the king's wise men came, keep in mind that Daniel is not included in these wise men. We're going to find out in just a couple of verses why that's so. At this point, I just want to say, why are these guys still working? Every single time that the king needs them to interpret a dream, interpret something, they seem to be wrong. And, and I think, I'm, I'm really wondering, who has the worst record? The weatherman or, or these guys here in Babylon? And so you, you have this thing, every time they're called upon, they can't give the answer. They, they, they don't speak out the truth. And so we see here, verse 8, now all the king's wise men come, but they could not read the writing or make known the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Everyone that was in this great feast now was now troubled. They're no longer feasting, they're now in fear. And as they're in fear, we see here, Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. Now, this queen is not one of his wives. We've already talked about it before. She is the wife of Nabonidus. Um, this is um, Nitrochris. She's the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Now, she's the mother of um, Belshazzar. So when it says the queen, you could probably better translate it the queen mother. All of his wives, according to um, verse 3, were already in the banquet. So he said the king with his lords, with his wives, and his concubines drank from them. So his wives, you know, um, at this point aren't the queen. The queen is... Nitrochris, she's the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. She's the wife of Nabondus. She now comes. So I want you to realize she's not at this banquet. She's not at this party. She's not the one partying. It's, you know, Belshazzar and his wives and his concubines and all the lords of the kingdom. She chooses not to go. And I find it interesting, and just make a note of this, that she's the one who comes into the banquet hall in verse 10, and the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God, and the days of your father, which would be grandfather, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, or grandfather, Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians as astrologers, as Chaldeans, and soothsayers. And inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, for he will give the interpretation." I love the heart of this because note something here as we're going to back up a little bit to verse 8 for just a moment. It declares of all of these um, astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers who were supposed to come and interpret this, it says in verse 8 they could not read the writing. I think it's important that I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone who's not born again, someone in whom is not the Spirit of God. And those people who are not born again, they do not have the Spirit of God. How many times have they said, I've read the Bible? I've read the Bible, and, and I don't see that in the Bible. I don't, I don't understand where you get what you get out of it. This book was penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the way to truly understand this book is to see it through the lens of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the lens of the Holy Spirit, if you're not you know, one who has a Holy Spirit in you to see and read this book, if you are not reading this book with that lens of the Spirit, it's just words on a page. But when you have the Holy Spirit, these words on a page now become living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so here, make a note of this, they could not read the writing. And I do believe that there are a lot of people who look to the Word of God, and if you're not prayed up and in the Spirit of God, it's just words. But as you do become prayed up and the Spirit begins to illuminate, you find out this is the words. This is life. This is power. This is everything that I'm dreaming of and hoping for. This word is what it is. Now, this queen, a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, she's not at this feast, but she comes to the feast. And that's why it says in verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. She wasn't in it, but when all these things happened, they're all troubled, and so she hears of it. She comes to the banquet hall, and she has to remind this um, king, Belshazzar, listen, there's another man in your kingdom. I want you to, if you're a a note taker, you can jot this down. Daniel, um, from chapter 4, to where we are right now in chapter 5, there's about 23, 24 years that have gone by. So if you take the, all of the, the, the reigns of the king from the, um, the two years of evil Merodach and then um, uh, Nergal Sherazar and his four years and, and uh, the, the boy for a year and the 17 years of Nabonidus, you're coming to about 23, 24 years. 
Daniel has been doing, not been heard of. Daniel's not been heard of for 23 to 24 years. How many times do we as Christians say, you know, I don't know what's going on. God's not using me. God's not using me. It's been, it's been weeks. It's been months. It's been years. And so Daniel here, he hasn't changed. We're going to see that Daniel still has the same thing. He goes, you know, day after day to his window. He prays to God. He's seeking God. But at this point, just because God isn't using you doesn't mean that he's not going to use you. Daniel here has been shelved for 23 to 24 years, and he's about to come off the shelf. I have, if you've, if you've ever seen me, you know, when we're working here on the church, I have this one hammer. It's a great roofing hammer. It's got this metal head, and it's got this nice, it's a long hammer. And, and it's just a great hammer. I love this hammer. However, I don't use the hammer for every project. There was a time not that long ago I was changing this electrical outlet at our house and I left the hammer. And the hammer was like, why did you leave me? I thought I was your favorite tool. Well, you are my favorite tool. I just don't need you for this project. But I still like that. I won't ever get rid of that hammer. I'm going to pass that, that hammer on to my, my grandson and, and he's going to have this hammer and he's going to be able to use it. But this, although it is like my absolute favorite tool, it sits and it sits and it sits until what? Until I need it. So if you find yourself where God's not using me, God's not using me, it doesn't mean that he won't. It just means, hey, I'm using other things. And, and although you may be sitting there in the toolbox waiting to be used, doesn't mean that what? You're not his favorite. Doesn't mean that you're not loved. Doesn't mean that he doesn't have his, his, his hand on you. He's just waiting for the opportunity. And that's what Daniel does. Daniel here is shelled for 23 to 24 years. And so how many times do we say, just, just God isn't using me. I want to tell you right now, wait and be ready. Um, you need to realize that he's going to just one day just pull you right out when you least expect it, says, this is what I need. Did you think that Daniel woke up this morning thinking, hey, God's going to use me like Joseph woke up in prison saying, maybe I'm going to be the second in command to Pharaoh? Nobody thinks what's going to happen before what? Before God takes and says, now I'm going to use you. Now I'm going to move you. And so the queen here comes in. She makes reference to Daniel. And as she makes reference to Daniel, it's interesting. There are some commentators who do have this belief that she, like Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar came to know the Lord, that as we saw earlier, his son, Evil Merodach, was very kind to the kings there of Jerusalem. And they also believe that here, um, that nitrosis that she also comes and she receives it so she has this heart where i'm not going to go into your feast but i know there's a man by the name of daniel and what she does is this i want you to see the testimony that she gives of daniel not that he gives of himself but that she gives of daniel look at verse 12 inasmuch as an excellent spirit of knowledge understanding interpretation of dreams Solving riddles and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. I love the testimony she has. There, there's nothing that shakes this guy. Nothing that's going to stumble him. And she says at the end of verse 12, he will give the interpretation. Now, either that is incredible faith, or it's absolute confidence in Daniel. So as we see here, she is the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. The, the queen mother now comes. She says, listen, you've got to get this man, Daniel. I love the heart because she says in verse 11, there's simply a man. There's a man with the spirit of God. And she says, there's a man with the spirit of the holy God. And, and so here, your, your father, your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, he knew this and he was blessed by this man. And he... This is this Daniel will also come and give you the interpretation. 
Now, notice how when King Nebuchadnezzar, back in the last chapter, we made note of it, how he doesn't call Daniel. Um, he says, yes, Belteshazzar, because that's how you know him. But he also gave him the name Daniel. This is what she does too. She knows him by the name of Daniel. Of course, she, she knows him by Belteshazzar. But I love how she says in verse 12, we're found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called. Do you see how she honors Daniel, honors his God, honors who he was? And he says, and he will give the interpretation. So verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is the one of the captives from Judah, who my father the king brought from Judah? So he asked the question, Are you the guy? Are you the one? He says in verse 14, I have heard of you that the spirit of God is in you and that the light of understanding and excellence and wisdom are found in you. I love the fact that Daniel is not here talking about his own greatness, but others are there talking about Daniel's greatness. And to Daniel, it's just, this is what I do. I serve God. God is the one who does this. It's not me. It's not in me. It's in the Lord. And I find it interesting that, that what are other people's testimony of you? What do other people say about you? It's not what we say about ourselves. I'll tell you what, we can, we can really you know, whitewash ourselves. What we can say of ourselves is one thing. But what do others say? And I love the fact that Daniel's testimony isn't what he said. It was what others were saying about him. You see in Daniel that although he hasn't been you know, used by God in this way for 23 years, he still has what? This testimony that he pleases God and that he's used by God and God is just using this time. And now verse 15, the wise men, the astrologers have been brought in before me that they should read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the, of the thing. And I heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in all the kingdom. So he says to Daniel the same thing that he said to all of his soothsayers and astrologers and Chaldeans who couldn't do it. Now he says, I'll give this to you. Now notice Daniel's answer here in verse 17. Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel here is not doing this for fame. He's not doing this for funds. He's not doing this for anything else other than what? I serve God, and God wants to make known to you. Daniel is not a Balaam. Balaam was the one, I'll do this for money, I'll do this for money. And Daniel says, I don't want your money. He's like Abraham to, to the king of Sodom. I don't want your money. I don't want anything from you. Daniel here, I love what he says, let your gifts be for yourself and, let your re and give your rewards to another. I don't want your stuff, king. But I will give you this interpretation. He said, I will make known to you. So in verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. Now, I want to stop here for just a second because what we see is this. Daniel here, because he cannot be bought, is able to speak absolute truth. There, there comes a point where when someone is concerned about a paycheck, when someone's concerned about what's going to happen if I speak the truth, you know, you're, you're not going to want to pay me. You're not going to want to, you know, reimburse me. Daniel here is not worried about that. And so he's able to speak the absolute truth. And I think sometimes what happens is that there are churches and boards and, and they say, listen, if, if you go down this road, you're not going to be here. So they compromise the truth. They compromise the word in order to simply stay. And I love what Daniel does. He doesn't. 
And as he begins his statement, he begins first and foremost by pointing out the error of Belshazzar's ways. Knows what he does. He's going to give the, the, the narrative, the story of his grandfather. And again in verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. Daniel says, your, your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had incredible power. As we realized, he was the head of gold. He had absolute authority. Verse 19, and because of the majesty that he gave him, all the peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. Now, Daniel's been witness to this. Because there was one time where, you know, the, the, the king's guard, Arach king, says, Hey, listen, we've got to put you to death. Oh, please, let me tell the king the interpretation. It'll be all right. But the king could at any point say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. I'm going to make your house an ash heap and show what happened. Now, we see this, that the king had absolute authority. Now, verse 20, what we see here of all of this power. But when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened in pride. Because God granted him these blessings of authority and power, he was thinking it was his. The pride began to well up. Keep in mind that whatever we have, it's not because we've earned it. It's not because we deserved it. And keep in mind, it's not even ours. We're stewards of these things. So in that pride, don't let your pride get the best of you. But here, because he had the power, he had the authority, it says in verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened with pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast. His dwelling was like the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Verse 22, But you, his son, Belshazzar, in other words, you, his grandson, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Daniel says, Belshazzar, you knew these truths. You knew that your, your grandfather had this problem. He was humbled. He was warned. And so you needed to humble yourself, but you didn't. You thought, I got this army encamped. What can they do? I'm going to throw a feast, and I'm going to act foolishly, and, and I'm going to you know, take these, these vessels that were from the the, the house of God there in Jerusalem. And I'm going to use those for all my wives and my concubines and my lords and their ladies so that we can have this celebration. So he said, although you knew this, in the end of verse 22 and verse 23, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, they have brought the vessels of his house before you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways you have not glorified. This is incredible. The God that holds your very breath in his hand. There's an amazing thing where you can think about moving your arm and you can move your arm. You can think about raising it up, putting it down, and whatever you think it does. Now, you can think about breathing fast. You can think about breathing slow, holding your breath. But eventually what's going to happen is you're going to stop thinking about breathing, and guess what? God's going to do it for you. How many times, you know, I, I'm so thankful I don't panic when I go to sleep to think, oh my goodness, I'm going to stop breathing because I'm not thinking about it. It's just, you breathe automatically. God holds the breath in your hand. He holds your life. He holds your death. And so we see here this incredible thing that God says, listen, this God who holds your breath in his hand, he owns all your ways. He says, I'm going to control all things. Now keep in mind, when he says he owns your ways, that at this point he realized he knew what Belshazzar was going to do. He already gave that prophecy to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 27. He said, you're the grandson. 
the kingdom ends with you, and this is the night. So, verse 24, he says this, the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. So, this was the fingers sent from God, and this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel, upharsin. And he says this, this is the interpretation of each word, many, God has numbered your kingdom and, it is, and has finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is been, has been divided and is given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a gold chain around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. Now, this interpretation, they could not understand it. And the inscription was this. It starts off many. Many simply means numbers. You're numbered and you're numbered. Now, what it means is this. In verse um, 26, this is the statement the word, many God has numbered your kingdom and has finished it. So in other words, many, many means, in other words, like the Alpha and the Omega, he started your numbering and he finished your numbering. Have you ever heard the term, your number is up? That's what many, many means. You, he starts the numbers and finishes the numbers. And that's why he says, God has numbered your kingdom. God numbers our days, everything that we have. We're, you know, we have a, a finite time. And I think it's important to realize here that he says, this is something you need to know. Many, many. Um, numbers and numbers. And so... You have the beginning of numbers to the end of numbers. And to God, he has already worked out. And as he says now to Belshazzar, the interpretation of the first, many, God has numbered your kingdom and has finished it. He started the numbers, your numbers are up. Tekel. Tekel is, is very close to that term is shekel. And shekel is simply a volume or a unit of weight. And so when he uses this word tekel, he says, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. So that word tekel, very similar to shekel, is just simply a balance of weight. And what Daniel says to um, Belshazzar is, listen, you're, you're on the scale and, and you have no real weight of righteousness at all. In other words, you're a lightweight when it comes spiritually. You haven't weighed down the scale with anything. And so your life, everything that you've done has been nothing. Keep in mind that what does God do? With everything that we do that is good, gold, silver, precious gems, he does what? He purifies it in fire. Wood, hay, and stubble, what happens? Consumed. Daniel is saying to Belshazzar, everything that you've ever done has been consumed. You're on the scale. Your time is up. And God has weighed you out, say good and bad. And he says, and you're a lightweight. You have nothing to account for anything good. And then he says this, you farson. And he says, Perez, verse 28, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The word you farson means to divide. It also means to sunder. In other words, to split. And so what here Daniel is saying to Belshazzar is, okay, God has started your numbers. Your number's up. You've been on the balance. You've got nothing good. You're a lightweight. And now he says your kingdom is about to be torn asunder. It's no longer going to be yours. It's going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. So what does Belshazzar do? He says, I told you I would make you third in command, told you I'd clothe you with purple, and told you I'd give you a gold chain. So as he does so, now verse 30 comes, and it's just key to this entire passage. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. There was an army outside, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. I want to pause for just a second here, and I want to take you to a portion of Scripture found in Isaiah. The reason I want you to turn to Isaiah is this. That Darius is, Darius the Mede would be one of the rulers of the Medo-Persian empires. When it came to this area of trying to conquer Babylon, what we found was this, that he had a general by the name of Cyrus. 
And God had given to Cyrus an incredible plan on how to defeat, basically, this impenetrable fortress. What they realized was this, that that Cyrus had off to, way off to where the, um, the towers that were 300 feet high, they couldn't see what was going on. That he had gone and they had just dug this incredible man-made lake and they just dug it and dug it and dug it and dug it. So they made this huge giant pit way out in the desert as the Euphrates was coming into Babylon. And then when the time was right, what Cyrus says is this, we're going to just take all the water and we're going to stop the Euphrates from coming this way and we're going to send the Euphrates that way into this lake. And as the Euphrates was diverted, what happened is their army, the army of the Medo-Persians under Cyrus, would then go walk on a dry riverbed that actually went right down through Babylon. And then that part of the army came, opened the doors from the inside, let the rest of the army in, and the Babylonian army had no idea what was happening. They thought, we are so secure. But what happened is they they simply diverted the whole river Euphrates, and they they came in on the riverbed underneath the, the bars that were there because they thought, well, you know, how can you do that? Well, when it's dry, you dig it out, you get your people right on in there. Now I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 44. I'm going to start reading in verse 27 because God is going to be speaking to the general. He's going to be speaking to Cyrus. Now keep in mind that as he speaks to Cyrus, he's going to speak to Cyrus 150 years before he's even born. So when Isaiah is writing this, Isaiah 44 and 45, it's between 150 and 200 years before Cyrus is even born. And this is what he says of Cyrus, Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 27. I'm going to read all the way through verse 7 of chapter 45. Verse 27, Isaiah 44, who says to the deep, be dry. I love this. Exactly what Cyrus used to get into Babylon. And I will say, dry up your rivers. The exact plan that he had. And there are some you know, people, who, scholars who say that, that God had given to Cyrus this vision about what it was. And then when he does come in, that the, um, the children of Israel actually say, Cyrus, guess what? We have a scroll with your name on it. It's an old one. It's about 150 to 200 years old. But you're going to love this. And so we see here who says, verse 27, of the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure. Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. He says, I'm going to use you to open the gates of Babylon. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of the darkness and hidden riches of the secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I've even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they, that is Israel, may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no God besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. God says, Cyrus, you're going to do an amazing thing here through me, but I'm the one who's going to guide you. I'm the one who's prepared you. I'm the one who prepared this event. And how amazing is it that when you have this great idea, let's just build this lake outside and divert the the river Euphrates and let's get inside. And then you read that God had that same plan 200 years ago. 
And he said, but I'm going to give it to you. I'm giving it to you. You are going to do it. And I find it interesting here that although the scripture speaks of Darius, the king, the authority, and it doesn't speak of the general who does this, that when you look at scripture as a whole, it actually teaches us that here, Cyrus, who's going to, is the general here of Darius, that of course Darius begins to rule, and we see that part of his rule as we get into the next chapter. But I find it just so amazing to see here that God has a plan. And understand this, if he has a plan for a Gentile, heathen general, so that he could give God glory, my question to you is this, do you not think that he has a plan for you and I, his children, that we can give God glory? And I'll tell you what, it may not be as much as just, you know, taking the Euphrates River or taking the Milwaukee River and diverting it somewhere, you know, like over at Mark's house or something. And, and so, but, but what we mean is this, that you can literally, and I think this is where the great glory of God comes in. That the, the chapter is not based on Cyrus. It's not based on Darius other than this is just what happened. The chapter is based upon one man of God taking the word of God and declaring it. This is where the true glory of God comes in. This is where John the Baptist was blessed because everything that he said about that man that God gave John to speak, he said everything he said about that man, Jesus Christ, was true. And there was no greater prophet than John the Baptist. And I love the heart because if you want to do something great for the Lord, let me just tell you what's great. Take the word of God, and, 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 and infuse it through the Spirit of God and declare that word. There's no greater things that we can do. I love it how Jesus said, listen, what I do is I don't declare anything of my own, but all that the Father tells me to say, those are the things I say. If you want to do great things for God, take the word of God, illuminate it with the Spirit of God, and declare it boldly. May that be our heart. Amen.